how would you like to save $80,000 when you're buying a commercial property? Hi, I'm Joe Krause. And I'm Sam Powell, and we're the hosts of Property Powers Australia. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing the two key primary valuation methods for valuing a commercial property. We also talk about the difference between commercial property cycles and the residential property cycle and why it's valuable to know how they move and what lags the other one and why so you can predict or start to invest based on understanding the cycles. Yeah, yeah. We also throw a few examples out there too and um, some key ones around how buyers agents can actually miss things and why it's really important that you're actually engaging in a commercial you know, buyer's agent who has a really good in-depth understanding of the commercial property valuation process. Uh, so there's a few little interesting things there that you, you get a lot out of. What I also love is what uh, Jake's explanation of how he could save or was able to save somebody $80,000 on a commercial property uh, or could see an $80,000 valuation difference on a commercial property and why it can be value to you, valuable to use a valuer even if you're using a buyer's agent when yeah. like- <laughs> valuable to use a value. I love it. Yeah. The last thing I would say, just understanding the the path that Jake um, has come to, to get to where he is today is as well as myself. Uh, we share a few little valuation histories and um, you know, we've, we've been very close in our journeys together um, during this process. So I hope you get a lot out of it. Welcome to Property Pals, the podcast where we share everything around how to build a property portfolio from researching areas, financing, structuring, buying, selling, and reinvesting to live a life of financial independence. As a disclaimer, any information shared by myself, Jared, Sam, and the Property Pals team is strictly general and should not be taken as constituting professional advice. You should consider seeking independent legal financial and taxation advice from a qualified professional. Jakey, thanks so much for coming on the pod. No worries. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Good to have you here, mate. We'll just... Yeah, we're just saying, we're just saying that, um, well, you were saying, Jake, that, you know, this is not like this is, you haven't done this before and this can just be the same as like you and Sam just catching up what you normally talk about. And that's the exact reason that Sam and I started the podcast is because I was buying some property and like speaking to Sam on the phone, asking him like a million questions, just being a total noob. And uh, we're like, why don't we record this and like just put it out there? Because we're just mates having a chat and um, it's good to bring on another mate and have a chat. We're actually reminiscing about our um, surf trip in the Mets before, weren't we, Jake? Yeah, it was, that was epic. I would, I would go back. I might find it a little bit hard to get it across the line with the wife these days, with the, uh, <laughs> the three-year-old. But, yeah, it was just saying probably the best surf trip I've, I've done. Having that wave out the front was just, yeah, it was epic. Yeah, it was the, special. You see the, the Kelly Slater's new wave pool in Abu Dhabi? Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Go away, Siri. Go away. <laughs> I was like, who else is here? <laughs> Did you let Kayla in while you yeah, were here? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, cool. Yeah. I don't know. Like, well, I've got so many questions for you, Jake, and I'm sure you do, Sam. I think we, I think we talk about the val- like how to value a commercial property. We've talked about like the different types of commercial property, but 
Sam, uh, let, let, let me hand the mic over to you and, and you start asking some questions and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll dip in as well. And we can yeah, ask sure. you well, Jake. Uh, Jakey, uh, look, you're a senior commercial value with uh, one of the large firms um, in Australia and you've got a lot of history that we can tap into and valuing commercial property is not as easy as... Um, I guess people tend to believe um, there's multiple different methods. So what are the, the main you know, valuation methods for commercial property? Um, yeah, look, it, it, it sort of depends on asset type. and um, But, look, generally speaking, you've got the, the primary approach in most investment cases would be capitalisation of net income. So that's essentially looking at the net, net income of the property and then we look to the market for uh yields essentially and um, depending on market conditions at any time obviously yields could be uh, firmer or softer um, and then obviously yields will, will differ between types of assets um, and depending on you know a whole range of of, of factors um, and then we have direct comparison um, which essentially you could you, you know looking at a rate per square meter um, on building area lettable area um, net lettable area um, and they're, they're probably the two primary approaches that we do. There are some sort of some other approaches, summation approach, which is essentially just what's the value of the land plus the um, the added worth of the, the buildings. And then um, for some of your larger properties, um, like big multi-tenanted assets, um, we'd be looking at sort of um, discounted cash flow modelling and um, IRRs and things like that, but less common in, in the work that, that I do, um, sort of your standard commercial. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're the, the primary down. approaches. Ah, uh, thanks, Jake. I'd love to break down the, the those first two or those primary two. Yeah. So you're saying just like from the lens of somebody that's listening is like I've got some commercial property and I'm starting out in commercial property and they want to move into like let's get me to the, the commercial route and, and cash flow when they can, when it's feasible to do so. And they're like, I, I just heard you say, all right, for the first approach is you're getting the net income from the property and then are you is it correct in saying that you're going to the market in that local market in that area for that same asset type and looking at what the yield rate is and then sort of coming up with a valuation from that or and how, yeah. how do you I'd like get a bit more specific around that explanation I guess yeah so like the way that we would sort of break this down is um, so first of all we we look at the rent so just taking a very simple single tenant um, property example might be say an industrial unit um, that's tenanted what is the income um, of this property and typically what we do is we look at the gross income so uh, most leases a lot of leases are struck on a um, sort of a base rent rental amount plus the recoverable outgoings um, so we can basically consider this gross rental amount um, and we would we would make an assessment about whether or not it was at market or not so whether it was um, you know, essentially, because sometimes you get these situations where the rental's really inflated um, for whatever reason, and that's something you have to kind of look out for. But essentially, you, you, you take your gross income, you take off um, the outgoings of the property, and that gets you back to your, your sort of your net income. Um, and then, yeah, essentially from there, it's 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 all a function of yield, um, which exactly as you said, we sort of look to sales evidence to. Um, demonstrate what yields have been achieved in the marketplace, and obviously yields will will differ. So um, basically, we had a situation during COVID where we had a lot of uh, interstate investors 
um, investing in the local Gold Coast market. And basically, um, some of the reasons for that was our the yields on the Gold Coast were quite attractive on a um, on a kind of national basis compared to what say someone in Sydney could get. They were a lot firmer, so the returns on the Gold Coast were more more attractive. Um, but yeah, does that kind of explain that first approach? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. By, by firmer, you meaning lower? So lower, yeah, yeah, lower, stronger, stronger is probably the best the best word. The way what, I like what do you, what do you mean is, by that? So when you say that, Sam, like just for well, us listening, like firmer or stronger, what does that mean? Yeah, well, people in, are willing to pay more money for a same amount of income, right? Yeah, and that's what changes that yield component. And in Australia, the, there's obviously markets within markets. So Sydney and Melbourne have a you know, firmer yield rate because it's just more established, and people see that as lower risk, right? So um, a firmer yield is a yield that is lower yield like is they like firmer yield would be uh five percent when the average might be seven is that correct yeah so essentially someone's willing to accept a a smaller return um for the for the asset for whatever perceived you know generally a a yield is like it's it's sort of risk tolerance so um yeah that's that's essentially what it what it comes down to yeah yeah, it's a bit to get your head around, um, and obviously that's why I want to get Jake on the on the pod so the two of us can throw a few things out there. But Jared's really, uh, I mean, he's very interested in this commercial space, and we're, we're, we're touting whether we this next purchase for him is to commercial or to you know, build on his residential portfolio. So it's good, like for like Jake and I. Obviously, the numbers just sort of rattle around in our head, and the language comes out. Uh, so Jared, I'm really yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm interested to see the questions that come out of, of you today, my friend. Yeah. Uh, but it, like the simple form that I try to look at it from the commercial base is, you know, people are looking at that income play. It's a strong income investment. Um, and it's just like from a, a risk perspective, you know, people will have this mindset of, well, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, I'm happy to, you know, park my money there because I have a feeling it will increase in value greater and I'm willing to take a lower income. So that's that yield component, which is a direct reflection of risk uh, from that component. And Jake and I will have a conversation offline um, today just around the, the differences between an investment asset and an owner-occupier in the commercial space. So, Jake, did you want to – that sort of rattles into that next um, direct comparison. Method. Anything you jump in there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. I guess um, depending on the buyer profile, um, we would it would depend which of those kind of two classic approaches we would have as our primary valuation method. So um, the the capitalization method is obviously concerned with yield, which um, you know if we were looking at sort of an invest an investor um, asset, the capitalization of net income approach would be the, the primary approach because investors are basically solely concerned with yield. Um, Whereas the the owner occupier market, they're generally more concerned with affordability metrics. So typically, uh, if we're assessing a property on the basis of vacant possession, so essentially it's vacant and owner occupier can move in, we would be um, primarily concerned with direct comparison. So we'd be looking at rate per square meter, rate per uh, square meter of building area, rate per square meter of land, um, in kind of yeah, assessing assessing value um, just because, yeah, as I said, an owner-occupier, they're not as concerned about uh, return. And 
our own occupier being, say, somebody that has self-managed super fund that they might be able to use to purchase, uh, or, you know, a property as their workplace. Is correct. Yeah. That correct. Standard? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Correct. That's that's probably the most typical, um, typical situation. Yeah. Mm. And so, with an investor that comes into the market, like they are obviously going to, you know, probably use a buyer's agent. They're probably not going to go buy their first commercial property themselves, let's be honest. Like the amount of due diligence that needs to go into a commercial deal compared to a resi is so different and like many nuances and risks that are not in resi. So they come to you guys, Jake, uh, to get evaluation. Typically, I know that you guys do bank vows and stuff like that, but some outside yeah. investors come to you guys to do evaluation. How important is that when, when investing in, in, in any commercial deal? Yeah, look, I think I think um, there's a lot more moving parts with a, a commercial property. So um, there's a few just different things to get your, your head around, and I think sometimes that is intimidating for people. Um, so I think, look, generally speaking, it is worth, especially your first one, um, having a chat to someone who, who understands um, kind of the mechanics and the different elements so that, um, I mean, as valuers, we're very, we kind of look at things through, we have a bit of a risk lens just naturally because essentially a lot of what we do is we're protecting the bank's um, security position. So, um that's kind of the lens through which we we sort of value. It's not to say we're always trying to be conservative, but it's just sort of the nature of the, the profession. Um, so yeah, look, I think it's 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 pretty it's it's very important. Um, you know, we would typically we would do the valuation, but I would give a lot of feedback around different kind of risk elements, like cash flow risk elements, asset risk uh, elements, and then we generally will touch on kind of market conditions, which is you know equally as important. Sort of what are the um, the underlying market conditions for this particular asset because you have a situation where like you can't just say you know all commercial properties are performing strongly we, we've got a situation currently where um, industrial properties in particular are um, the kind of not much supply a lot of underlying demand they've been extremely strongly performing for the last few years and they're very much holding firm at the moment under uh, weaker economic conditions um, whereas conditions for office and retail assets are, are definitely more fragile. So it's important to kind of understand what you're getting into uh, and all those underlying fundamentals because you can kind of just think, you know, yield is all that's important. And generally speaking, a, an office or a retail asset would reflect a high yield to account for that added risk. But if you've got really weak, you know, say leasing conditions and if you lost a tenant in an office um, and you couldn't find a new tenant, you're sitting there as, you know, um, as an investor with a vacant property generating no income, that's that's pretty risky. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but, yeah, very important. You, you touched on a really key point too, and we, Jared and I spoke about this last week around market cycles and uh, understanding them is, is even more fundamental, I feel, with commercial than it is with residential. Um, my, my reasoning for that is obviously businesses are more susceptible to um, certain market cycle downturns uh, and there's a, there's a risk there too. Uh, my mind just runs into you know, where we're at in that cycle in certain asset types. Obviously, you're based on the Gold Coast, so there's that there. Um, we, we were obviously speaking about something as well, which I thought was, was quite important, um, is the differences between the different commercial 
assets, where your industrial, your office, your retail and, and where they're at. So can you explain a little bit around I guess, the, the risks that you're looking at in this current market uh, with the, uh, around each of those main asset types being retail, industrial, office? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can probably speak to some of the like macro factors that you might see nationally but obviously i'm kind of i'm based on the gold coast so a lot of the my observations um, will be fairly gold coast specific but i'll where i can i'll try and give some sort of broader um, broader commentary but yeah so the industrial market as i said absolutely um ridiculously strong performer over the last sort of three to four years that's very much been driven by um supply and demand imbalance um, very limited supply of industrial properties on the gold coast um, relative to a very strong underlying demand um, and basically that comes down to essentially there is no more um, there is no more vacant there's no more industrial land on the central gold coast essentially yatlo would be um, kind of where most of the new estates are, are located so we've just seen land values go through the roof um, and that's actually the kind of, and then also we've got a really, really, really tight vacancy rate um, in the industrial market. And that's actually a national um, kind of factor as well. We've got, I think, one of the um, tightest industrial vacancy rates of sort of um, many countries. Wow. So, yeah, we're kind of seeing that um, across the board. Um, office, the office market, obviously, as you could probably expect, it got smashed during COVID with like a lot of people working from home. We had huge, um, massive vacancy rate blowouts kind of across the board. Um, interestingly, on the Gold Coast, um, we've had a very rapid absorption over the last uh, 18 months and, and I would say the office market's probably been um, sort of most improved uh, out of those markets. We've seen, yeah, the vacancy rate tighten quite a lot. There's not really a whole lot of supply in the pipeline, so... Um, but still, just generally speaking, a, a riskier, I would say, like generally speaking, um, maybe a slightly riskier asset class. And you generally would see um, a risk premium for office investment assets over and above, say, a really good quality industrial asset. Um, and then the retail space, um, obviously, similar dynamics to the office markets got pretty hammered during COVID with lockdowns and things like that. A lot of retailers really struggled. Um, vacancy rates in some of our core kind of uh, retail precincts like Broadbeach, Surface, Southport, just, yeah, really, really elevated, which puts kind of downward pressure on rentals and just generally isn't, um, yeah, not, not ideal kind of setup. It's been slowly improving, but I would say still pretty fragile. Um, and you sort of, um, because economic conditions are a little bit weak, you've seen this flock to, um, I would say, like non-discretionary um, uh, retailers, like your yeah, kind of supermarkets and things like that, as people move away from discretionary spending, um, those like like um, supermarket anchored little retail centres have been pretty popular. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like a high level, uh, broad overview of of those kind of three main main markets. And there's a uh, like for, for me, um, the reason why there's so much more. Uh, 
like there's not a lot of information out there around commercial or not enough for people to be able to have the confidence to even go out alone, even though some people do. Uh, because there's things that obviously we were talking about as well, Jake, was the differences between even those three asset classes. People just think commercial is commercial, but, I mean, you're mentioning that, uh, can, can you just sort of uh, elaborate so everyone else can obviously hear is the, the whole land tax component that, you know, that is, is a risk in these commercial assets as well? Yeah, oh, so obviously um, land tax is one of your biggest, well, there is a threshold for land tax. So if the, the worth of your property um, is below, I think it's 350 grand, but they average. Um, the change, does it change from resi to commercial though? Like is it still the same, same um Tax. I actually don't know the I don't know the setup for um, resi investments because you don't pay land tax on a lot of residential properties, Sam. Uh, it's definitely not your principal place of residence. Yeah, if it's outside your land, um, principal place of residence, this is obviously where my brain sort of ticks in. Um, yeah, the residential has a threshold of six hundred thousand for your personal name under investment. Uh, a, lot yep. of, a lot of commercials held under trust structures, so there's similar land tax thresholds, um, and obviously each state is different. But under a trust structure is three hundred and fifty thousand, which you hit the nail yeah. on the head on that front. Um, and even speaking with Andy, uh, one of our close accountant contacts, is there's there's additional premiums being um, tapped into that from the commercial sense as well. Um, so, like the the biggest risk for people to understand is what do these land tax proponents actually have uh, on your cash flow and How's your lease structured, right? Yeah, so um, with a commercial property, like this is one obviously one of the big benefits of a commercial property is you can generally, depending on the structure of the lease, but you can generally um, recover all property outgoings from the tenant. So it means that um, if you're obviously as your site, your government site valuation increases, your statutory expenses will increase too. So land tax will go up, council rates will go up, but um, if you're recovering this from the tenant, you're sort of hedged against those increases to a point that becomes an issue where if it blows out too much, how affordable is the rent for the tenant? Um, but sort of even within that, um, land tax is not always recoverable from your tenant. Um, land tax is recoverable for most leases, but if you have a retail property and the lease is subject to the, um, the Retail Shop Leases Act, um, you actually cannot recover land tax from from a tenant under that particular um, lease. So, um, yeah, but I guess like what we're seeing on the Gold Coast at the moment is um, because especially industrial um, underlying land values have increased so much and it's very much looking like they're going to continue increasing over the short, at least the short term, um, you've got this situation where, your kind of land tax and council rates are becoming quite um, burden burdensome, and um, if you're not recovering them, um, yeah, it's going to erode your net profit um, essentially. So, yeah, kind of, it, it's definitely one of those important things to to understand. Yeah, so, we're looking like if you're going to invest in an industrial or any sort of like commercial, I guess, understanding what the previous lease agreement was and if that was covered under or hundred percent is covered under um, the agreement when it's get passed to a new owner. And then also I guess you could look at the environment, the competition out there and like what are their lease agreements looking like as well and are those lease agreements recovering that land tax um, and is it a normality? Because yeah. I mean, yeah. change, yeah. right? If you like 
just bought a commercial deal and the lease ran out and you're like, all right, cool. I want to, I want to obviously have this land tax covered by my tenants. And, but you're in a location where that's not the norm. Then you may not be able to find a tenant that wants to take on that sort of lease. Right. As an example, I guess. Yeah, look, I guess it's it's as you sort of hit the nail on the head with like what is the norm? And I would say for most like industrial um, leases, it is it's it is very much commonplace that you would recover um, land tax. If, if there is land tax payable, that you would recover that um, from a tenant. Um, but that sort of is, that is quite an important point. Um, if you are looking to buy a commercial property as an, in, as an investment and there's an existing tenant, it is super important to look at that lease really thoroughly and understand uh, the different aspects of the lease. Um, and sort of one of the obvious things to, to look through is, you know, what's the structure of the lease if it is kind of a, a, a net plus recoverable outgoings lease. The lease will actually explicitly outline which uh, outgoings can be recovered uh, from the tenant. And you do see some anomalies where, like, generally speaking, council rates, water, land tax, you know, electricity or your kind of uh, utilities and things like that would be recoverable. recoverable. Uh, but sometimes leases won't include um, like, you know, repairs and maintenance. Um, management fees is a really, a really common one, which is kind of rarely or at least like not commonly included as a recoverable item. But, you know, management, if you own a big property, management could be thousands of dollars a year that if you're not managing it yourself and you're paying someone to professionally manage it, that's an expense you've got to cop out of pocket, but you're very well within your rights to actually put that in the lease and recover that amount from your, your tenant. So, yeah, all that to say, really important to understand the structure of the lease um, and have a you know comprehensive understanding of the, the different elements. Before we continue today's pod, I want to ask you a few questions. What is your property investment goal? What type of properties do you want to own? How many? What size valuation property portfolio do you want to own? And how much net income do you want to be earning? Essentially, what's your magic number in passive income that you want to be earning? And do you know how to get there? And if you do, do you know how to get there in the least time possible with the least amount of risk? Sam and I have been helping people invest in property and build property portfolios for years. People who are now replacing their income through property, and we want to help you do the same. Right now, for a limited time, we are offering free property coaching to our listeners. We won't be able to do this forever, of course, so head to propertypals.au forward slash coaching. That's propertypals.au forward slash coaching to see how we can help you achieve your investment property goals. Link will be in the description too. This is also where my brain goes into checking vacancy rates because it becomes a negotiation every single time with with your tenant, right? Like if you're going to ask them to pay land tax which is within the right of an owner um you know they might put their heels in the sand and say well no um we'll go look elsewhere and you, you need to be willing to accept that because you know they've got to do what's best for their business uh, but in a low vacancy environment which we're currently in um, it's very difficult for these tenants to find replacement um, rentals essentially so um, knowing where you stand in that cycle is really important too. Uh, but it's even just knowing these things, Jake. You know, I know it's comes common sense to, or common sense like natural to yourself that you've been doing it for so long. But um, these are the complexities of commercial property that I just feel aren't being spoken about in the broader community because 
it's it's not the glitz and the glamour, the high cash flow. It's amazing. You can retire in one or two purchases. There, there is definitely risks there. Um, and to make an educated investment decision, you've got to look at the pros and the cons on each deal. I want to, I want to touch on uh, the cycle. Like you said, depending on where you're purchasing in the market cycle, you mentioned something, Sam, around residential market cycle and compared to uh, commercial market cycle. And I've got a question for that which I'm going to ask in a second, but I think it's worth stating and noting uh, how we how how we know you, Jake, and how Sam got to know you because we haven't told this story yet, right? Like you, and I think it's relevant because, Jake, you and Sam met when you were both working together as residential valuers. No, and, no. No? All right, well, you guys, you, you guys tell me the story how you met. <laughs> Oh, Jakey, you, oh, you go. Well, forget, I'm going to drop Charles here, Charles on this. Uh, yeah, we've we got to get Charles on the You board. need to get Charles. Yeah, Charles is the, the missing, he's sort of the missing piece <laughs> yeah. in we'll how we him. met. Yeah. So, yeah, tell us yeah. the story though, Jake. I literally, like, can't even fully remember, but you're at Taylor Byrne. Yeah, so all. Yeah. I was at, I was at Taylor Byrne. A competitor, competitor. Competitor to the big. Oh, uh, this gets juicy. Heron Todd. It's not that juicy. No, it's not that juicy. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you, yeah, because obviously your, your your father was the director of the commercial division of Heron Todd White, and um, obviously you and Charles went to school together, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually didn't, but I was very close with all, essentially, yeah, all the All Saints boys. But yeah, you poached, spent a lot of time with Charles. You poached Charles off me, so I had had no one to hang out. Yeah. With. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you? Did you? Just because I, I'm, I don't know. Like this is like inner circle stuff between you three guys. So I just, just for people listening, you got Sam. I went to school. Me and Sam have been best mates forever. And then Sam studied a bunch of property and became a residential valuer. Obviously, knew Charles, who is now a friend of ours as well. But Jake, you were friends with Charles from school, from hanging out with that group. Yeah. We've been on a surf trip together like many years ago now i think it was like six years ago um but maybe even longer uh maybe maybe yeah around six years ago but so charles so how did you sam meet charles and jake i guess oh charles came and worked for taylor Byrne um okay. as, a, as an assistant valuer and yeah then charles and jake were best mates they went to uni together right yeah we we studied together we like yeah pretty funny funny we had a lot of the same jobs through uni and then went on a gap year together worked at the same telesales telesales job to save for that that trip so we we'd sort of always had um overlapping jobs growing up and then yep studied the same thing both studied um property at uq in brisbane lived together up there and then i went to work for htw which yeah my, my old man was one of the commercial directors at the time um and charles went to a competitor um, on the Gold Coast, so this was like you know basically one of the first different jobs we'd had, which is, which is <laughs> funny. Um, and then I forget how long into the piece. I think Charles was registered, but I floated the idea of they they needed another resi valuer um, at HCW, and I sort of had been speaking to to Charles about it. And then we we poached Charles, and then you came you came after Sam. Is that right? I can't remember the order. Yeah, I, yeah, I came after. And, uh, so we just just gutted Taylor Byrne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just took all their resi valuers. So Jake, you've never been a resi valuer, or you've studied. No, so I, yeah, like you, you, um, 
you just study property generally. It's not specific to, to resi or commercial. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I And then essentially not to bore you with how you get registered as a valuer, but I had to do some training for two years. I started in the, the residential training pool, which is you're just doing, like you're just setting up jobs. It's pretty... Um, pretty sort of basic stuff um, and then there was monotonous yeah <laughs> monotonous and then there was an opportunity to to pivot over into the commercial um, kind of the commercial division so I did like maybe six months in the residential training pool and then I went over to the commercial um, commercial side of things and yeah did about I don't know a year and a half more training there got registered and I never actually valued houses. I never have. I've always always valued commercial property. So, um, yeah, that's sort yeah. of in my back my background. But that's cool. That's, a, that's the difference between. I'm glad the, that's. Sorry, Sam. So that's the differences between the the big firms and the, the little firms. So, um, the like Heron Todd White is obviously one of the biggest valuation firms in Australia, and Taylor Burn, where I started, we were just a. Or a small small fish, but I was able to get access to like all my training was so diverse from resumptions to commercial to development to residential. Uh, it was good training, but yeah, eventually you, you pick a path, and um, I mean on scale, it was just a, a more attractive proposition from a career perspective to go work for one of the big ones. Yeah, congrats, guys. Yeah, it's really cool to hear your career stories and how they formulated. And I wanted to sort of have that shared on the pod so people understand, like, yeah, we don't, we didn't just like reach out to Jake and found you, you know, because you're working, you know, with, you know, that firm. Like, it's actually from you guys have known each other for like yeah. six years now and same yeah. with Charles. And the reason I think it's valuable to share the resi side and the commercial side and, and the, I guess the general blend of everything you guys have both learnt is because my question is when you've got property market cycles, you've got the resi market cycle and you've also got the commercial market cycle. My question is because business moves a lot faster than residential, people are going to be less likely to be moving homes and selling and it's a longer lead time to buy in and out of, I guess, maybe not buy in and out of, resi versus commercial but slower to move market would you see the commercial market cycle change faster than maybe the resi market cycle yeah that's an interesting question look i I don't i don't know like specifically and admittedly i haven't actually valued through like significant um market cycles before to be honest like this is sort of like i'm sort of in one now where we saw, um, you know, obviously huge amount of rapid growth kind of during that COVID period um, in the same way that the resi market boomed. And then we've seen this kind of at the moment um, hasn't really fallen off a cliff. It's just, <laughs> it's plateaued. Um, some markets are holding better than, than others. But, um, yeah, I'm very much looking at what's happening and trying to learn because, you know, yeah, this, this is sort of a novel experience for me. So I can't say like I can't really talk specifically um, to that that question. But I I have spoken to my my boss seems to think that the commercial market can be you know maybe like twelve months to eighteen months behind sometimes the resi market. So if you start to see cooling in the resi space, um, generally there might be some lag before we start seeing 
similar dynamics play out in the commercial market. Wow. Sam, have you got, yeah, have you, can you speak to any of that? Uh, it's all crystal balling stuff. I mean, the overarching, it, it, from the market cycles, it, a lot of it comes down to the, the psyche of the, the, the buyers. Um, your business confidence levels is really key for like you know, further expansion um, or, or consolidation on that front. Um, and I, I would I would feel that the business market would be more in tune, like the, the commercial markets are, because they obviously lease to businesses. They'd be more in tune with um, where the the consumer is at, because they're seeing their profits, right? And then that. But from a business perspective, like, and, and this is a really great argument between choosing what's safer, residential or commercial, is like the the commercial side is those businesses. I feel like they they can see it coming um, sooner, but what they don't want to, uh, you know, like reduce their business, and they obviously see ebbs and flows because they see their profit margins going up and down. Whereas your standard employee just has their fixed salary right so they don't see the, the pain that the business owner does um, mm-hmm. so that residential market is a leading indicator for these businesses to go oh that's pulling back uh, and that what that's why that six uh, the 12 to 18 month uh, comment that you just made just rings a lot of bells in my mind uh, yeah in that sense but like from a you know an overarching market cycle you know you're still going to see those down periods um, coming through like a business will do anything it can to maintain it being open and they, they understand that they go in and out i do feel like there's probably more emotion in the um the residential side uh of you know them over leveraging for that emotional you know i want this home because this is my dream whereas commercial is more of a strategic numbers game um so do you have any idea around what the hold periods are, like on average, for commercial in southeast Queensland? I've got, I've got literally no idea on average, but it, yeah, I, I couldn't say with any certainty. I think probably another point um, that's important to raise is because you need a, a bigger deposit, generally speaking, to buy a commercial property. Is a bit more like um, a bit more kind of. Um, like if things do swing a little bit and move, there's a bit more sort of fat in 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 um, the way that people are uh, leveraged, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas like you, people can be absolutely like you know leveraged at 95 percent on a on a residential property, but it's just not possible to do that on a commercial property. Yeah. Um. So, I think I think that's important to consider as well. I want to ask you, Jake, around the commercial property. What sort of uh investors or owners are you seeing that are in in commercial uh are they are they just have a large commercial portfolio or do you see people that move from resi build a portfolio and finally get to the stage of uh yeah now i can afford that deposit for a you know a commercial deal do you see much of that at all and if so like where in their property property journey do they sort of might make their first you know, commercial acquisition. Yeah, like I'm not, I'm not as connected to that, that part of, um, because I'm not necessarily directly acting as a BA. I don't always get the backstory um, yeah, yeah, yeah. on the deals, but as a general observation, um, kind of a new dynamic that I've seen um, in the last couple of years is obviously with the rise of the buyers agency space, the fact that you know 
there's a lot of content and information out there. I think people are starting to wake up to, you know, um, the edge that commercial property investing have or, or the, you know, the positive differences yeah. compared to uh, residential property. I think in, I think Australians, we've just, like, we love residential property and for, you know, the longest time the narrative has just been buy a house, buy the next one. It's just hasn't even, commercial property hasn't even been on people's radars. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a growing awareness that, um, you know, it is a good option. Obviously, the needing a bigger deposit, there's sort of more barriers to entry the education piece as well, you know, there's a lot more moving parts. It's harder to understand. But generally speaking, you know, definitely seeing people buying buying assets like, you know, your mum and dad investors buying something in their super fund or, you know, a just a, a younger person, you know, who might own a couple of houses now looking at a small entry level industrial unit for 500 grand. Mm. Um, that's definitely, there seems to be sort of a rise um, in that space. And, and yeah, quite a few vowels across my desk where there's, um, you know, a contract in play and a, and a buyer's agent has has sort of been involved in the deal, which is, you know, that's that's kind of a new dynamic over the last couple of years and seeing, you know, interstate, interstate money in, the, in the, local, the local market. Yeah, that's a, um, I mean, the rise of the buyer's agent, right? Like uh, coming out of us being valuers and then me changing the space, um, and obviously the the work that I'm doing uh, at the moment, there is a lot of unperceived risk there for a lot of retail investors trusting people with, um, you know, their own money, right? Like, can have you? Like, I've seen oh bloody <laughs> a number of um, ex- uh, examples where um, I was going to say hundreds, but you know, probably more like your your fifty to eighty examples of, in my time of buyers agents not actually you know doing that the the role that they're essentially being paid to do which is have their clients best interest at heart um what sort of do you have any examples that you've seen come across your desk where um just to i guess educate people on you know it's your money at the end of the day the buck stops with you so you need to get educated and then work with your buyer's agent not just trust them to do the best thing for you Mm. Yeah, I think like super important to have a base level of understanding yourself. Um, just because, you know, I'm not trying to say all buyers agents are, um, like negligent or not, not trying to do the right thing. Um, but ultimately there is a bit of a, um, sometimes can be a conflict of interest where a buyer's agent gets paid for the deal going through. So maybe they're not scrutinizing things as closely as they should. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, you've got selling sell, sales agents that are trying to, you know, talk up the property or maybe um, put some of the obvious risks in the background. They're, they're not, you know, they're they're trying to um, make it seem as appealing as possible. So, yeah, I think having an understanding yourself so that you can at least look at the deal a little bit critically too. Um, an example of, of probably a pretty terrible deal that came across my desk was um, a little industrial unit in Molendina. Um, it was, I'm not going to say who the, the BA was, but um, it was a, yeah, a, a deal mediated by a, a buyer's agent. Um, and I went out there and it was a a industrial unit, industrial area, industrial zoning, and it had fit out for a gin distillery and bar. So it like extensive fit out, like full um, little Reason. dining area. Yeah, yeah, like real real specialised fit out. Um, I was thinking, okay, this is 
you know, this is interesting. And then looked online, sure enough, there's no approvals for that particular use or the fit out. So there's immediately there's kind of non-compliance risk with council if they rocked up and issued you a show cause notice, you know, that that tenant might not actually legally be able to run that business from from there. So that's pretty risky um, for you. And then there was a lot of mezzanine accommodation, um, like a mezzanine level in this unit that, um, you know, when I looked into it, wasn't approved either. And this is actually a pretty typical typical example of how people can overpay. Often um, an agent will include unapproved areas in the total area of the property. And if you're buying on a rate per square meter, it's pretty easy for that to get uh, yeah. overstated. Yeah. But, you know, you shouldn't pay full full freight for a bit of the, the property that's unapproved because again if council really wanted to they could tell you to to rip it out so this this property had basically all those elements so would you say it's wise for somebody that like i'm just thinking from an investor that is learning from coming from resi maybe they bought four resis uh properties and they're like i want to get into commercial and you said there's a baseline understanding that you'd need to know so you're not getting like obviously duped and played by a buyer's agent that may be charging 2% of the deal, the close price of the deal for their, you know, work that they do, um, which that is a terrible business model for the consumer. <laughs> uh, I see yeah. that with business acquisitions as well. Uh, as a as a buy side, mergers and acquisitions advisor, you know, I can charge 1% to 3% of a deal. Uh, but you should have a clause, I believe, of like how much you negotiate the price down from the asking price. Um, yeah, and, so like, and like a performance. Yeah. yeah, performance, yeah. 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 So just, just I mentioned that for people thinking about like who they're selecting as a buyer's agent. So if they need a base level understanding, I've got multiple questions in one. Uh, what it's like, number one is like, what is some of the base level understanding they should know? And then number two is like, would you suggest it would be worthy of, uh, getting a value after you've found a property that you're about to sign a contract on, commercial deal, would it be worth having a commercial value art, you know, look over it and check it or do a separate valuation? Because I have heard buyers agents actually suggest that as well too. Yeah, I, I reckon definitely, um, especially if you've got a buyer's agent that's like operating, you know, they're not they're not they're not based in that particular market. They might be a Sydney based BA buying something on the Gold Coast. Like if they're not super familiar with that market, you know, they might have a grasp of kind of basic valuation methods, but ultimately like it really pays to know that particular local market. Is the rent overstated? Um, you know, not just applying, oh, these are the yields in Sydney, like applying that same sort of um um yield expectation to a Gold Coast market without really knowing where the yields are at on the Gold Coast. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I mean, it's like you could pay if it's a small entry-level property, you know, $1,200, $1,300 to get a valuation done. Um, or if you've got the time, fully educate yourself. It's just like what's, you know, what do you want to, what do, you want to do? It might just be worth paying a professional who you know, has a qualification, who is doing this day in, day out. Yeah. But if you're really interested in learning and you want to like throw yourself into, you know, lots of study, then by all means. And if I think you most do, people that can afford a commercial property deposit aren't going to want to spend too much. Well, they're going to want to learn, but they're obviously not going to want to learn yeah. enough that they can value. And how, you know, for me, I, say I do three years of learning, Jake, I'm never going to outperform you in terms of evaluation. 
Yeah. Well, like, it's, it's, it's so long. yeah. Yeah. And, and like, as an example, that particular unit that I was talking about that had all the you know, unapproved use and, and mezzanine in it, mm-hmm. I think, I think the valve fee for the, the bank was like for that one was maybe 1500 bucks. And I ended up putting about 80K less than the purchase price on that. Amazing. that particular valuation and that was me trying to be like as optimistic as I, I possibly could so it's kind of like you know it's a fraction of what you could be overpaying so to me it's a it's a no-brainer yeah, this is the importance too of uh you know subjecting a you do, you do diligence in your commercial deals is, is having a evaluation report being handed to you of a external third party who has no uh, I guess uh, effect on the deal. I mean, commercial yeah. deals is really important. I mean, there's obviously the finance side. Some people have cash, and it, like when I'm putting when I'm putting offers on on properties, the least amount of restrictions are obviously more advantageous to get a deal through because um, obviously the seller, you know, there's less risk on things falling over. But even still, you know, even if it is a five hundred thousand uh, dollar purchase. It's a lot of money, to, and then like as you can see, just by listening to this conversation, a, a small mistake, even in, under the eyes of a trusted advisor, quotation marks, um, you know, can cost you eighty grand. That's that's insane, you know. And that um, that might be the title thing. of the podcast episode: How to Save Eighty Thousand Dollars on a Commercial Property. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot to it. Um, I, I feel like like going back this those that are that are listening to this. If you're enjoying this content, please um, leave a comment below because obviously there's a there's a wealth of knowledge. I mean, Jakey, you're a multi generational commercial valuer. I'm not sure if you've thought about it that way, but your brain. Uh, I definitely have the same sort of thing when I left the valuation industry into the buyer's agent space. Is you're like, wow, I didn't give myself enough recognition for what I've learned over the decade or so that I've been just just working, you know, like doing your day in, day out. What you know is highly valuable and we're really appreciative for you to, um, to spend your time with us. That was awesome. It was, it was fun. Definitely definitely do it again. Yeah, well, awesome. we'll hold you to it. Jared, you, <laughs> yeah. Jared's a man who's uh, with all the questions, mate. So well, we might not be done yet. Jared, you got any more uh I've Juicy got, questions, uh, I've got a lot of questions, but let's let's wrap it up here, and then we'll come back with another one and um, have a good chin wag. Then, and we'll, we'll, we should call out Charles. We should send this this episode to Charles and say, "Mate, let's yeah. get on and have a good yarn. It'll be fun." I think. 